Welcome everyone to the very first full episode of History of the Marine Corps. I'm Robert Estrada and I'm very excited to kick off this podcast. We hope you all feel the same. This week's episode will take a look at the tavern trade in the 18th century and why it was important to colonial Americans. Although this doesn't directly apply to the Marine Corps, understanding the tavern trade sets the framework for the birth of the Marine Corps in Tun Tavern. Thanks for joining. We're glad to have you. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. If I asked, how far would you go for your freedom? What would be your answer? It seems like a simple answer, right? I'm sure many of you are confident that you would do whatever it takes to sustain our freedom, and maybe you would. Hindsight is a gift we have when answering this question, but the truth is, not many of us have been in a position where our answers have been tested. It's easy to see the results of successful rebellions, but there are countless times people have failed fighting for their freedom. The Servile Wars, or better known as the Slave Rebellions against the Roman Republic, the British Empire, Mongol invasions, all great empires, each encountering countless countries, villages, tribes, and colonies defending their freedom, and ultimately the majority of defenders failed. And how would you know when to fight? Again, the power of hindsight. It's easy to see the turning point when looking back in history, but how do you know it's the right time to get involved? Even today, we are seeing signs of our freedom being restricted. Regardless of where you live, or what your political beliefs are, I'm sure you can point to plenty of examples of our freedom slowly being taken away. This is a struggle colonial America was having in the 18th century. Increased taxes to pay for the British government's war debt, the lack of American voice in Parliament, or taxation without representation, which I'm sure you all have heard of before. Colonial Americans were also facing British laws on restricting access to guns and ammunition. These were some of the many underlying factors that led to the American Revolution and the decision from the Second Continental Congress to establish our military branches, including the creation of the Continental Marines, which would be later known as the United States Marine Corps. Since its inception on November 10, 1775, Marines have embraced their origins and have a profound respect for the history and tradition of the Marine Corps. I served in the Marine Corps for eight years, so I know from a first-hand experience how important traditions are to the Marine Corps. Our origin is part of our identity, and just about every custom has developed based on how Marines have handled themselves in the past, along with present-day Marines honoring the heroes who came before them. We have combined many of our customs into formal regulations to ensure the behavior and spirit of our traditions are kept. The Marine Corps Ball, Mess Night, the wearing of the Mameluke sword for officers and the non-commissioned officer sword carried by the enlisted, each of these events and practices has deep roots in Marine Corps culture and celebrated by Marines throughout the globe. Understanding and embracing these customs is significant to every Marine because it reminds them of the legacy and traditions of the Marine Corps and of his or her responsibility to uphold them. This isn't a platitude we tell ourselves. It's something we practice. It's something that is required. Before any Marine graduates boot camp, he or she is required to pass academic testing, which includes knowledge of Marine Corps history, customs, and courtesies. We have the Commandant's Professional Reading List, 
where the Commandant of the Marine Corps recommends books each year for professional development and critical thinking at each grade level. Completion of this reading requirement is documented in each Marine's fitness report or taken into account when assigning proficiency and conduct marks. When I was a young Marine, I had a gunnery sergeant who required Marines to write book reports whenever they got into trouble. Now, this probably isn't the typical punishment you think of when Marines get into trouble, but it was extremely wise and profoundly practical. We learned the importance of history, and the book report expanded our critical thinking and reading comprehensive skills. A punishment designed to make you grow is a true characteristic of a great leader. History and tradition are a value that is embedded in us early in our career, and it is something that stays with us throughout our life. So when all Marines think about the origin of the Marine Corps, they think of the night in Tun Tavern, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, on November 10, 1775, where the first recruitment drive for Marines took place to prepare for the Revolutionary War. To understand Tun Tavern, you first need to understand the importance of taverns in colonial America during the 18th century. Colonial Americans regarded regular drinking as disgraceful and wicked. However, ironically, casual drinking was considered healthy and expected. The Drinker's Dictionary, which was published on January 13, 1737, contained over 150 stellar terms signifying drunkenness, 15 of which were contributed by Benjamin Franklin himself. Some of my favorites include Has stolen a mansion out of the brewer's basket Took his drops Smelt of an onion And he makes indentures with his legs To be honest, I'm not sure what most of them mean, but the old-timey language makes them comical. I'll post this reference on historyofthemarinecorps.com so you can take a look for yourself. Taverns were common in Europe, and it shouldn't be a surprise that settlers brought that tradition to the colonies when they first arrived. Taverns were usually located in the heart of European cities and were regarded as a center of social and political life in the 18th century. The local population and travelers passing through would socialize and many times fight over a drink or two. Debates on current policies were often held, and taverns often signified government and religious opposition in Europe. That symbolism made its way over to colonial America. Taverns in Philadelphia grew in popularity, and soon there were more public houses per capita than most European cities. By 1769, Philadelphia had 178 licensed public houses, with a population of 28,042, that is one public house for every 158 men, women, and children in Philadelphia. And yes, children did visit taverns and were given drinks described as small beers, it usually contained a low alcohol content and was often preferred to water since the local water was often unsafe to drink. The comforts Colonial Philadelphia's tavern offered to the public were basic. Most taverns had a single bar room where customers sat around a common table, usually drinking from inexpensive pewter cans, which were often made with lead. Sometimes they would share a communal bowl. Although food could be found, it was not until the mid-18th century that a few of Philadelphia's tavern keepers began to attempt to provide regularly scheduled ordinaries, or a fixed price menu. Travelers lucky enough to find lodgings in a tavern could expect to share a bed, sometimes with a stranger, and always in rooms close to both the bar area and licensee's family. Despite the less-than-ideal conditions, taverns were extremely important to colonial America. Even men and women who rarely visited taverns and saw little purpose in the uses other Philadelphians made of the city's public taverns 
understood that tavern sociability had the power to threaten or overturn those values that they felt were important. Some residents preferred settings that were more practical, yet they still recognized the potential of tavern debate and occasionally participated in discussion and argument within it. This kind of reminds me of social media today. Once you filter through the memes, selfies, and cat videos, we've created a tool where your message could be spread globally. We're seeing changes occur in days, which is extremely powerful. Benjamin Franklin also saw the power in taverns, and he wanted to restructure colonial Philadelphia through voluntary associations. Voluntary associations were volunteers who agreed to work together for a purpose. There wasn't a formal process to start an association, and the formation of these groups grew in the 1700s. However, there was fear that the motives of these voluntary associations would be misinterpreted as covert or rebellious. Because of this fear, voluntary associations held many of their meetings in public houses. Public houses provided voluntary associations the ability to work through an agenda in public, which minimized the fear of secrecy. However, meetings in a tavern had the downside of being interrupted by other customers whose goal was focused more on the beverages rather than constructive conversation. Discussions in taverns were looked at negatively compared to print and text but many documents were produced from conversations held in taverns. Pamphlets and newspapers often highlighted tavern speech, and public houses were favorite sources of colonial Philadelphia's written productions. Taverns became a public venue where colonists resisted, initiated, and addressed changes in their society. In Rum Punch and Revolution, Tavern Going, and Public Life in 18th Century Philadelphia, historian Peter Thompson states, my thinking about both the extraordinary popularity and the social and political significance of tavern-going in 18th century Philadelphia has been influenced heavily by Thomas Brennan's study of public drinking in 18th century Paris, which strives to understand the appeal of the public house from the customer's perspective. Brennan juxtaposes evidence from elite sources with attempts to discover the positive uses of public drinking through evidence that has come more directly from the people in taverns. His main source of such evidence is a body of police records that contain detailed transcriptions of Parisian taverngoers' speech and behavior. Brennan describes laboring Parisians engaging in the public reproduction of their social relations in taverns. He concludes that public drinking in taverns reenacted a fundamental communion among men, a symbolic consumption and sharing through which they created their solidarities and reaffirmed their values. The most influential public house built in Philadelphia was the City Tavern. In 1772, Samuel Powell spread the word about a large lot on the northwest corner of 2nd Street and Walnut Street to a group of seven well-to-do citizens. These men turned to 52 friends and asked for 25 pounds each to invest in what became the City Tavern. The project was managed on behalf of the subscribers by a board of trustees. In August 1773, the trustees publicized to both potential residents and the public that, as the proprietors have built this tavern without any view of profit, but merely for the convenience and credit of the city, the terms will, of consequence, be made easy to the tenant. The extensiveness of this undertaking and superintending so capital a tavern as this is proposed to be requires some stock beforehand, as well as an active obliging disposition. A person so qualified, it is imagined, will find it in his interest to engage in it. At the cost of more than £3,000, the City Tavern was open for business. To give you an idea of how much money this was, Three Tons, a very popular tavern but not to be confused with Ton Tavern, was valued at $325. Daniel Smith was selected as the first tavern keeper, 
and some historians believe he was probably the first American ever to be interviewed for a position as a tavern keeper. Smith was chosen because he was, quote, the proper person for the role. He spared no expense in furnishing this tavern. Sophisticated bedrooms were furnished to better accommodate visitors. The bedrooms were detached from the activities of the tavern, and he set up a clean coffee room that provided newspapers from England and other colonies. As you can imagine, this was very popular among travelers who just wanted to rest and avoid the chaos of tavern-goers. City Tavern was the largest and most stylish house occupied in the colonies at this time. The City Tavern was a large brick building, 50 feet long and 46 feet deep. All the windows had shutters, all the walls were plastered, and the house was floored throughout with yellow pine boards. The entrance was immaculate, and the first thing visitors saw was an extensive set of stone steps. The first floor had two rooms located on either side of the central hallway. The rooms ran the entire depth of the building, and apart from a chair rail and cupboards on either side of the chimney, the rooms did not have extravagant architecture. These rooms were designed for entertainment and could be divided by movable partitions for private functions. The second floor had two smaller rooms located next to the staircase on the street side of the tavern. These rooms were typically used for events requiring serving or preparing food, but adjacent to these rooms is where the city tavern shined. The properly named large room ran the width of the back of the city tavern. Similar to the rooms on the first floor, the large room could be divided by movable partitions. The division point was identified with fluted pilasters and ornate molding on an extremely high ceiling. The large room also contained areas described as boxes, which I interpret as colonial cubicles. These boxes sat opposite of the windows and were slightly lit to provide privacy. Needless to say, the large room was used for grand events, such as special political meetings and the city's dancing assembly. So I don't speak French, and I'm probably going to screw this name up, so apologies in advance. But Francois-Jean de Beauvoir, Marquis de Châteauloup, attended a dance at the city tavern during his visit in 1780. He was fascinated to find that Americans developed a relationship between dancing and politics. Many of the dances were named after political events, such as the success of the campaign and Burgoyne's defeat. By 1785, pleasure gardens, not what you think, these are gardens open to the public for recreation and entertainment purposes, started to replace the city tavern's large room as a place to see and be seen. By the 1790s, hotels began to spring up and offer citizens more in the way of space, privacy, and modesty than lodgings at the city tavern. City Tavern had a difficult time competing with hotels. In 1791, James Oler opened Oler Hotel, which was the first public house in Philadelphia formally designed and marketed as a hotel. The hotel was located on the south side of Chestnut Street, close to the Pennsylvania State House and next door to Ricketts Circus, owned by John Bill Ricketts, an English equestrian who brought the first modern circus to the colonies. Oler's Hotel was twice the size of City Tavern, running 190 feet on Chestnut Street. Another area where Oler's Hotel was surpassing City Tavern was the use of ice, something we take granted for today but a pretty big deal in the 18th century. In 1794, Henry Wainsey ordered a glass of punch and was thrilled when it was served with a large piece of ice. Wainsey was staying at the City Tavern but due to the lack of ice, bedbugs, and terrible service, he moved to Oler's Hotel. While waiting for his chamber, Wainsey described the assembly room. It is a most elegant room, 60 feet square with a beautiful music gallery at one end. 
The room was papered after the French taste, with Pantheon figures and compartments, festoons, pillars, and groups of antique drawings in the same style as lately introduced in London. Wainsey was pretty happy with his new quarters. He designated Oler's as the most agreeable lodging in Philadelphia, and others agreed. Moreau de St. Mary, a French lawyer and writer with a career in public office, said the hotel was the most beautiful and comfortable inn in the United States. Unfortunately, as time went on, the city tavern became more and more unpopular. Public social events such as dancing started to look for venues elsewhere. Dancing was another way Philadelphians believed they could express themselves and their opinions. There were unwritten rules with dancing, and if someone refused to dance, or if they danced when it wasn't their turn, it was considered to be a serious social offense. Most songs were designed to force guests to dance by having memorable names, such as the success of the campaign. By 1790, the requirements and social offenses that came with dancing became so tiring that dancers stopped attending. In 1791, the dancing assembly left the city tavern and started performing at Oler's Hotel as an attempt to bring up attendance numbers. On March 22, 1834, the city tavern caught fire and was partially destroyed. Due to the cost of repairs, lack of popularity, and culture change, the building was entirely demolished by 1854. The present building in Philadelphia was constructed in the 1970s and opened in 1976 for the United States Bicentennial as a functioning tavern and restaurant. There were plenty of differences in the social status between the customers who visited City Tavern and Oler's Hotel. However, both establishments owed their existence to a need to exchange and converse information and form voluntary associations. The constant conversations, debates, and speeches held by a diverse group of colonials encouraged the political changes in Philadelphia. Both William Penn, the founder of Philadelphia, and Benjamin Franklin recognized this, and both played a significant role in the growth of the city's tavern trade. Even though they shared the same goal, Penn and Franklin had very different beliefs on how to create a community of thought. Benjamin Franklin thought the best way forward for reform was through voluntary associations. Benjamin Franklin believed that the public actor is the way to change the world. Penn had a different view and his goal was to transform the world indirectly through spirituality, morality, family, and church. Due to multiple colonial failures in the past, Penn wanted a fast settlement in Philadelphia. He thought the best route to achieve a quick settlement in peaceful communities was through a popular seaport. To accomplish this, he endorsed a small population of taverns that would serve travelers visiting the port, as well as workmen working the ports, and also showing potential future colonials that Philadelphia was a place to be. In 1683, Penn drafted Philadelphia's first regulations regarding taverns and encouraged the community, assemblymen, and counselors to collaborate and regulate trade. William Penn, in great progressiveness, invited everyone in Europe to Philadelphia to worship God according to their own belief. Freedom of religion is something we take for granted today, but in 18th century colonial America, this was new. So on July 10, 1683, friend and invitation recipients Samuel and Joshua Carpenter took William Penn up on his request and started their voyage to Philadelphia. Next week we will explore Samuel and Joshua Carpenter and how they would go on to be extremely influential colonials, very successful businessmen, and participate in the tavern trade by opening one of the most renowned taverns in Marine Corps history, Ton Tavern. Thank you for joining. Next week, we will dig a little farther into how the Marine Corps was founded by taking a look at Samuel Carpenter, 
who had a significant impact in colonial America and provided land to his brother Joshua, who would build Tun Tavern. We will also explore the beginning of Tun Tavern, how it operated, previous proprietors, and some other notable organizations who started in that tavern. We will also touch on Robert Mullen, the first Marine Corps recruiter. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, which includes references used. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend. We rely on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.